Hey, it's Sarah. That's What She Said is presented by Coors Light, the beer made to chill. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Don't forget to check out The Dan Levitard Show with Stu Gatz from 10 to noon Eastern on ESPN Radio. Plus, you can now listen to original content before and after the radio show wherever you find your podcasts. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. Well, that's what she said. Welcome to That's What She Said, conversations with interesting people from the world of sports, music, comedy, and more, talking about their lives, careers, successes, and failures. I'm Kavitha Davidson, and I'm a podcaster, and I hate listening to the sound of my own voice. Ah, well, Kavitha, you say dilemma, and I say you found the right job, because in theory, you don't have to listen to your own podcast that often. Now, every once in a while, you want to go back and make sure things sounded the way you'd hoped. You want to do some sort of audio checks on yourself. Make sure you don't say um too many times or reuse the same phrases. Always good to go back and listen to some of your work and make sure you're doing it right. But for the most part, the podcasts you really want to listen to are the ones that someone else is hosting. So as much as you and I absolutely hate the sound of my own voice, we don't have to listen to it that much except for in our head when it sounds perfectly fine coming out. It only sounds terrible when you go back to listen to any recording of it. Which again, yeah, I mean, it, it could be... It could be a job where you don't talk at all and then we wouldn't ever have to hear it. But I think for the most part, we've actually uh, dodged a bullet here because I'd be very sad to not be able to listen to my own podcasts uh, and I get to create them. So I get to listen to them while I'm doing them and then very rarely revisit the uh, terrifying and awful sound of my own voice. I'm Jessica Luther and I'm trying to decide whether or not to just eat the cookie dough that's in the freezer or do I go ahead and make the cake today that I was thinking of making? Jessica, this is an important question and it really depends on time. If you have time to make a full cake out of whatever this delicious cookie dough you have, uh, then you should because not often do we have time to make a full cake and put dough to use in the way that it is intended, which is to actually be baked. On the other hand, If you don't really have time to make the cake, then it's perfectly fine to eat the dough and then just go buy some more dough for another time when you can make the cake. But don't eat the dough now if it will prevent you from making the cake. If you have time to make the cake, because there's always time to eat the dough and there's not always time to make the cake. And there is a metaphor in here for something. Somebody else can figure it out. There, I fixed it. The commission has spoken. My two guests today have both been on the podcast before. Jessica Luther came on back in July of 2017 to talk about all of her different early work and the work that led her to her focus on um, gendered violence in sports and her her book, Unsportsmanlike Conduct, College Football and the Politics of Rape. Um, her investigative work around sex assault on campus specifically focused on a number of um, high-profile cases. Uh, so she's been on before, but she's on to talk about her new book. Um, and she is also a host of the Burn It All Down podcast, uh, which you can uh, find great conversation there. And her co-author in this new book is Kavitha Davidson, who also came on the podcast as part of a roundtable on uh, women working in the sports industry a year or two ago. She now works for The Athletic uh, as one of the co-hosts of the lead podcast and the editorial director as well. Uh, She also is on the board of directors at the Yogi Berra Museum. Um, Both of these ladies uh, are women. I really respect their work and their voices on a number of powerful issues. And they've come together to write loving sports when they don't love you back. And boy, is this book 
a powerhouse for any number of us that have addressed a lot of these topics um, in our work or have come across them as a fan, which I'm sure many of you have had to figure out how to deal with rooting for a team that has a domestic abuser on it, rooting for an owner that has business practices that you don't agree with, um, how it is to continue uh, you know, your collegiate pride for a program that you feel has enabled or covered up crimes. Um, there's so many ways that sticking to sports is really not an option, um, not just because we're big fans, but because our tax money pays for the stadiums, because um, we want to be involved in the conversations and keep our jobs, but still bring to light issues that we would like to see get better. And that's what our conversation is really about. How did they figure out what issues to tackle of the many that sort of be uh, are, are a conflict with sports fandom, what their solutions are, what they imagine the response will be from many to two women saying, here are the many things in sports that should be fixed so that we can enjoy it without feeling these conflicts. Um, and also just how these issues are reflections of issues that are endemic in, in our larger society. It was a really great conversation. Could have gone on a lot longer. Um, I also played therapist Kavitha as she uh, dealt with her move <laughs> to LA and now back to New York. Uh, it's, it's a good one. I hope you guys enjoy it. That's what she said. So happy to have these two ladies on the podcast to talk about their new book, Loving Sports When They Don't Love You Back. I actually had both of you on the podcast before. Jessica, you came on in July of 2017 and talked about how you and Kavitha had started writing this book. So in case people are wondering how long it takes to write books, it's a long time. Um, but for those who didn't listen, if you can just give a brief background um, we talked a lot back then about how sort of a through line in your career was bodies and ownership and power. And that was something you studied early on and it sort of became a part of your work in the sports world. Um, and you made a name investigating sexual assault on campuses, including some big pro high profile stories like Baylor. Uh, but for those who don't know Jessica Luther, uh, the quick summary of who you are and how you came to be. The quick summary. I, for a long time, was going to school to be a historian, almost got my PhD at the University of Texas before I dropped out of that program. Uh, and then I went into freelance journalism. And like you said, I focused a lot on gendered violence and sports. And I wrote a book about it back in 2016 titled Unsportsmanlike Conduct, College Football and the Politics of Rape. And yeah, I just, I co-host this podcast, Burn It All Down about sports and culture. It's just been the through line and it made a lot of sense for Kavitha and I to work on this book together about dilemmas in sports. And uh, at the same time you came on, you were about to launch the Burn It All Down pod. Slightly different people hosting it now. There's been a little bit of switching in and out, but the through line is the same and the, and the focus is the same. Tell people where they can find that podcast. And there's a website now with it too. Yeah, burnitalldownpod.com. There are five co-hosts. There's three journalists and two historians, and we do it weekly. We're on break, actually, right for August, but we'll be back in September. And we just tackle, that's always a good pun, we tackle all the sort of sports and culture stuff that comes up. Uh, and then we have a burn pile every week where we each toss something on the burn pile that we hate about sports that week. And then we metaphorically flame it. Well, that so sounds like a lot of fun. Great uh, ongoing research for the book. Yes. <laughs> right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. The parallels were very real. number of complaints to try to consider when writing the book about the dilemmas in sports. Um, Kavitha, you came on the podcast before as well as part of a roundtable about women working in the industry and all sorts of issues that that stem from that. Um, you used to work with me uh, at ESPNW, writing for the website and and doing work. Uh, here at ESPN, but now you're at The Athletic. So tell me about the lead podcast and what people can expect from it. 
Yeah, so we uh, we are a daily podcast. We cover all sports, and we really kind of focus on very rich, very in depth storytelling. So you know, we kind of we kind of tell people we're like the New York Times, the Daily, but for sports. Um, and you know, we we try to give you a good mix of like the biggest story that's happening that day or that week, and just to, like a really like in depth profile and and you know some of the stories that that really just transcend sports and 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 we try to reach as as wide an audience as possible with that. So give us a listen. We're on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm very used to reading that line by now. So. <laughs> <laughs> One of my favorites but, is they have a uh, Stu Gotts on the Lebetard show. Stu Gotts read things and he'll say wherever you get your books and it always sounds like he's asking right (laughs) I don't know wherever I don't know where do you get books um you yourself your sort of uh who you became uh and how you became who you are is as a a New York sports fan so I mean there could be a whole chapter in the book about you being a dilemma yeah, I mean, a hundred percent. Actually, we have we have we have a chapter about loving your team I mean, when you hate your owner. It's in there. I think hundred percent. It's not 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 so much flat out. Just like New York sports fans are a problem. Uh, it's 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 hidden a little bit more. In the- <laughs> I mean, listen, not all of us are a problem. Hashtag not all not all New Yorkers. Um, but there, you know, there's a chapter about loving your team when you hate your owner. And I obviously couldn't interview myself. Yeah, but yeah. you know, I did interview a Knicks fan. Um, you know, there there are definitely a lot of things in there. And Sarah, last time I was on, I was on your show, or it might've been the time before that, um, we talked about Aroldis Chapman, um, because I think he had, he had just been traded um, from the Yankees to the Cubs. And we literally talked about how we were doing this hot potato with this guy who we know is going to help us in the postseason, but we didn't want him on our team. And there's a chapter in, in the book about um, rooting for your team when there's someone like Aroldis Chapman, someone who's been accused of violence against women on there. Um, and those are very much the dilemmas that personally Jessica and I have had. I know that you've had them as well, Sarah. So that's that's really what we what we wanted to explore in this book. Yeah, we're going to get into that chapter. I felt particularly uh, interested in that one as I've had to reconcile that on a couple of occasions. Um, but you are a New York sports fan, currently living in LA, but you're going to move back to New York and Kavitha. Based solely on your social media presence, I would like, as as both the host of this podcast and for anyone who regularly reads it and knows how much time I spend dedicated to the practice of gratitude and positivity and how it will then bring more positivity and gratitude into our lives, girl, either just move or stop complaining or find some nice things about I lived in LA for six years. There are certainly problems, but I feel like you just sit at home and think about all the things that you hate about it. And there's so many nice things about it too. Okay. Well, there are some nice things about it. You have to understand. I also can't drive and you can't experience the nice things in LA. You can't experience anything Wait, in LA. I can't, can't drive. drive. You don't have I'm a, a New Yorker. I've literally never you been behind the wheel LA. of a car. You moved to LA and you can't drive. That's your own fault. I mean, I didn't choose necessarily to move here, um, but I like I can't drive, and I also like I have a, like I'm I was an urban studies major. I'm against driving culture. Um, the, honestly, like we don't need to get into it, but the freeway system in LA is literally built on segregation and racism, and and that's one of the major problems I have with the way the city is actually built and set up. But no, I cannot drive. I'm one of these New Yorkers. I have literally never been behind the wheel of a car, um, so. Yeah, but also, I mean, let me tell you, I've also been dealing with, you know, an abusive neighbor and, uh, you know, some some things that, and and quarantine in a city where I literally don't know anybody. So yeah, I think that- Listen, it's a tough draw. 
I respect that. My point is simply that when we're in bad situations, the way to make them better is to think about the positives that we can find every day instead of continuing to beat the hell out of the negatives until they feel even worse than they are. Well, we did lead this conversation with my being a New Yorker. That's true. true. You know, (laughs) and honestly, you New Yorkers take pride in not being able to drive in the year 2020, which to me uh, is is the root of of some of your problems. But this isn't a therapy session for you, Kavitha. Although, and sometimes when I'm reading your social media, I feel like it should be. Um, I want to just send you a bunch of like beautiful walks and hikes in LA and spaces to go. And yeah, I don't enjoy hiking. Um, I very much enjoy food. So what I what beautiful food in LA, great restaurant. It's very good food. It's real far. Like it takes me an hour to get anywhere. Yeah. Well, I have to take an Uber, but you know. But before the shutdown, I was getting through my life in LA by going to the Philharmonic and going to a nice tasting menu every week. So now I can't do any of those things. Oh, I can't even imagine moving to LA and not driving. What a that should be a book in itself. Uh, speaking of the book, now that we have sort of a background on both of you, um, and we could do longer on that, but I really want to get to so much of what's in the book because it's so great. Um, this is a bit of the blurb about the focus of loving sports when they don't love you back. For the authors, sticking to sports is not an option, not when our taxes are paying for the stadiums and college athletes aren't getting paid at all. But simply quitting a favorite team won't change corrupt and deplorable practices, and the root causes of many of these problems are endemic in our wider society. I mean, this whole book, and I haven't read the whole thing, but I've skimmed through all of it because I just got it a day or so before this interview. It's not actually out yet. Um was just things that I'm talking about all the time and they come up all the time. And especially that last bit, which is when people ask, how do you fix any number of issues in sports? I say, first, we have to fix society. Misogyny in sports is because misogyny in society. Uh, Under-resourced programs for women is because of that in society. Racism, homophobia, everything else. So when you tackled writing this book, uh, Jessica, how did you figure out to focus on the ways that you can identify it within the sports industry? Um, and of course it's roots in larger society, but without feeling overwhelmed that these are problems that are, are need to be tackled at the largest level versus just at the sport level. Yeah. Well, I think one of the things that's nice about sports when you look at it this way is that you really are, I mean, we're talking about society. I think Kavitha and I would agree that all the stuff we're we're talking about in the book is are things that we would fix in the society if we could, but sports allows you to really focus in uh, really hard and to talk about something that a lot of people deeply love and identify with. And if you can get them to question things that seem normal in sports, then you're, you know, the odds are high that those things are going to reverberate out, right? Because they have, there's something about sports, right? And identity, and the way that people just care so deeply about it, say more than movies or some other part of pop culture. I mean, there's parallels, right? But uh, so I think in that way, sports made a lot of sense. But of course, for Kavitha and I, that's something that we both, we are those fans. We both have deep identities within teams that, as Kavitha was talking about earlier, we've had to deal with over the last few years, 10 years of our lives. Uh, so it made sense to us to do it this way and to talk about it this way. And it feels productive to do it that way. Yeah. The identity aspect is a really important part of trying to understand sports culture because outside of say star Wars fans or maybe Trekkies or certain comic book turned Mm -hmm. movie fans, there is not an ownership and protection of the product in the same way as there is in sports, right? Maybe like some of the aforementioned ones, Star Trek people will say that character wasn't black 
originally, and now I'm going to throw a fit about it. Or uh, there shouldn't be so many women in my comic book movies or whatever the awful, terrible things that those people say when they decide that, you know, they're in charge and they're the gatekeepers of it. But for the most part in movies and books and music, you don't have that as much because it's something you consume. It's not your identity. So Mm -hmm. when we talk about sports and the way people say, I am this, who I am is this, and I am part of this, even if part of that means I'm a part of a group that's multifaceted in every possible way, religion, race, ethnicity, everything else. Um, Why does that make it so difficult then to challenge them on the things that they've accepted and believe about either their team or the sport in general? Well, that was one of the that was one of the central questions that we wanted to answer. And we talked to a sports psychologist. We talked to a, a psychologist about this, about what it is about the formation of our fandom and how that relates to the formation of our identities. And it's it's rooted in when those fandoms and how those fandoms are formulated, right? So they happen way earlier in life than most other fandoms, right? Like if you if you are a Trekkie, you probably, like you being a Trekkie probably wasn't passed down to you from your father, your mother, or your grandparents or that kind of thing. You know, you probably had to, had to take a couple of years and discover it on TV or whatever. Whereas your fandom is something that you're always surrounded with, whether it's by your family or whether it's by your town. You know, we talk about me being a New Yorker. My visceral connection to my teams is completely inseparable from my connection to my city. And that is my connection to who I am and how I grew up and the neighborhoods I'm from and that kind of thing. And like you said, those groups aren't a monolith. I interviewed Jesus and Marrow several months ago about how the picture of the Yankee fan is the corporate, white, wealthy frankly, from Jersey or Long Island, <laughs> um, Yankee fan. And and what we talked about was there, I grew up with a lot more Yankee fans who look like me and Jesus and Marrow and talk like me and Jesus and Marrow than, than is ever kind of um, recognized. But it's that reinforcement of that fandom that also reinforces who we are and where we're from. So by that token, you know, it's not obviously unique to New York. You can be from any part of the country, any part of the world and have that be true. But by that token, when what you've grown up with is challenged, when when the systems that are in place that have upheld these fandoms for so long are challenged, then that feels like it's a direct challenge to you. And that's what makes that's and, th- and, and that's what you react so strongly against. Yeah, that's a fascinating part. I want, and we'll get into that particularly when it comes to mascots or names of teams and how you should be able to separate yourself from that, but then it feels like an attack on you and what you love. Um, I want to read a bit from just the very first page because uh, what we're talking about is the big picture of all of this. Um, still, and we're going to be frank about this, the world of sports has long been an inclusion, exclusionary space, barring athletes of color and or women and or LGBTQ plus athletes from competing. If these athletes do find a way into this exclusive part of our culture, they face harassment and often suffer from a lack of resources. Any attempt they make to force sports to be more inclusive is branded negatively as bringing politics into games, casting blame upon those who are excluded for drawing attention to how the system was created and is maintained unfairly, rather than turning the spotlight on those who built the system and thrive within its strictures. Okay, a couple years ago, while hosting the trifecta, Kate Fagan vocalized something that I had, of course, thought about, but until I heard it in this way, it hadn't occurred to me. And that is the idea that defending the status quo is as much of an agenda as trying to change it. I had never thought of it that way because the way that we view and react to interlopers and 
people who want to change things and people who criticize is usually to label them as disruptive and bad because they just make us think differently and we're so comfortable and used to the way things have always been. And that is absolutely the case in sports as well, even though we can identify that the people who want most to keep it the way it is are wrong and they're perpetuating really (laughs) bad things. But even people who understand that are still predisposed to side with them because out of fear that things will change from the thing that they love. And and Jessica, I think that is such a big part of all of this is you ask people to think about things that they've just always accepted. And some people will think about it and say, holy shit, that is up. And some people will think about it and be like, Ooh, I don't want to think about that. That might require me to change how I feel about something that I've always been told is awesome and great. And that I love that's tough to do. Yeah. I agree. I first want to say that I loved the trifecta. So did I. I missed it. It was fun. (laughs) I learned a lot. Let's see the trifecta. Uh, Yeah, I think that this is a huge part of it. It is so easy to do the same thing over and over and over again. Like the ease is there. You don't have to work at that. And I think a lot of what we're doing in this book is asking people to do some work, even if that's just internally within their minds, not actually going out and doing activism or organizing or something like that around these issues, but to really question themselves and the stuff that they bring to the table, the things that are just so normalized in their lives, like the national anthem being played at the beginning of every single uh, sporting event in the United States of America. Like one time I went to a 5k run (laughs) and we all had to wait for them to sing the national anthem. And I just was like, what is happening here? But you're not even allowed to ask that question uh, without people getting mad at you for suggesting that that's a strange thing that we do in in this country. And so I don't know, it is, what do you do about it? I mean, it's always going to be, that's the big thing. That's the rock you're pushing up the hill, right? That keeps rolling back down is that, um, pushing up the rock and is really hard and it would just be easy to let it roll down and just sit there. And so I don't know, this is, this is just the work forever, I think. And the book made it so nice. I really enjoyed working on this book and with Kavitha, who knows a lot about stuff that I don't know anything about. Um, and being able to take all these different things that are in sport and put them all in the same place and to have, I don't know how long the book is a 300 page discussion about it. Um, that was, I enjoyed that part of this a lot. Well, and the writing of a book like this and having the conversations and at least introducing them to people is part of the pushing the rock up the hill that you have to yeah. decide to do. But unfortunately, so much of how it is perceived is the people pushing the rock um, are disrupting the beauty of sports, the escape of sports. But again, that requires you to ignore something quite obvious, which you write in the book as well. Fans love sports, but it's unclear if sports love them back. You love sports, but do sports love you back? This is the ultimate truth about the long history and the current state of sports and politics. As Kavitha once wrote for ESPNW, quote, when you think about it, really, the division between sports and politics has long been eroded. The separation is what takes effort to uphold, and it's mostly done by people whose right to exist in this space isn't questioned right? Stick to sports only works for people who are invited and welcomed and treated well within sports. So it's not, in fact, an escape for a Black athlete who has racist slurs hurled at them on the field. It's not an escape for a gay athlete who isn't welcomed in the locker room. It's not an escape for a female athlete whose highlight is published on ESPN and then all the comments are get in the kitchen. So this idea of it being escape is only for the very same people for whom 
an agenda is trying to change things, right? So Kavita, how do you even begin to approach the idea that the people who need most to read and hear this and understand are the least likely and least interested in reading and hearing this? Yeah, that's that's the biggest challenge, I think. You know, it's it's that idea that when you've benefited from a system of oppression, psychologically, like they've done nearest neurological scans on this, psychologically, any shift to that system feels like oppression against you, even when it's just a course correct, even when it's just trying to gain more equality for the oppressed. So you know, that like, it, it really does take, you know, what some might call an unnatural um, deflection of self-interest, right? Just kind of seeing outside yourself and outside your own experience here. Like you said, it's only been possible to stick to sports if your right to have sports has never been questioned, if your right to be here has never been questioned. Um But yeah, I think that we're seeing that people are capable of doing this now, right? Especially after the George Floyd killing, right? Like we are, we are seeing particularly white people and people who have always benefited from a system of racial oppression in this country, look around and recognize that just the realities of, of people who don't look like them, who don't come from the same places that they do. So this is possible. I actually do. I'm an extremely cynical person, the New Yorker, right? But where, yes, I do have, (laughs) I do have, I am, I am actually hopeful that people are capable of doing this. And Jessica mentioned the national anthem issue before. The national anthem is actually a really good example of something that demonstrates how quickly we are actually able to change our norms. We have not always had the national anthem played before baseball games. That is not something that if you are over the age of 30 is something you grew up with, right? Like, like that is something that happened distinctly after 9-11 that now, or God bless America during the seventh inning stretch. That is something that happened distinctly after 9-11 that now we just do as standard practice that we accept as the way things have always been. But that's not the way things have always been. So, you know, I think that we have shown elasticity in some of these areas. It's the willingness to recognize when something is wrong, when some things need to change. And also, frankly, yes, a little bit of a willingness to give up some of the things that you've always been comfortable with. If hearing a woman, if hearing Andrea Kramer in the booth, (laughs) it's so grating to you watching football, then you have to stop watching football or you have to get used to Andrea Kramer's voice. Like it's just, it's going to be one or the other. I'm sorry. Because, you know, first of all, that's just morally like wrong. And, and frankly, like, honestly, nut up, like, just. (laughs) um, but on the other hand, like, just from a practical standpoint, also, there are so many more women who would love to hear Andrea Kramer in the booth that are probably that might not be watching football right now, or might not be as invested in that. And that's a long term investment that people are looking toward. So, you know, things, things will have to change. And I think the key is, you can't, you can't make people feel forced into it, but they do kind of have to they have to get the hard push. Yeah, I am. Um, I tend to be optimistic and assume the best in most people, which is a good quality for everyday happiness. But the cynics around me move so much forward because they ask the questions constantly every time. Why? Why do we do that? Oh, should we still do that? And I'm like, that's actually a great point. Why do we like instead of me just being like rainbows and butterflies? Um, so it's really useful, and more so every day becomes obvious why it's so useful to ask why things have always been the way they are and if they could be better. Um, there's any number of topics in this book that we could get into from 
NFL concussions to dopers or domestic violence abusers that you uh, root for or, or don't root for, if that's the choice, criticism of women's basketball, acceptance of LGBTQ. There's a ton of things in here, and all of them are things that have come up over the course of my years working in sports. Um, Jessica, which is the worst for you? I know that's sort of a tough question. Mm. As you're writing this book, which one comes up the most to you in your attempts to love sports? And how often is sports telling you I don't love you back in the form of this problem? Hmm. I mean, I think the most obvious answer is anything around gendered violence. I've given up basically college football over the last five to seven years, which when we talk about identity, I tell the story all the time. But when I was deciding which university to go to, I only applied to one. Like I was going to Florida State because my dad and my mom did and because I was going to watch Florida State football. I think it was the only thing I wanted out of undergrad. And I got it. We won a national championship. I got to be there in the in the um, Superdome in New Orleans for it. Like everything I wanted, I got. But I don't follow it very closely anymore. I do it enough to do my job. Uh, but I certainly don't have the FSU football schedule in my calendar anymore like I used to (laughs) do the countdowns for the Miami and UF games and stuff like that. So in my own personal life, the work that I've done has certainly driven me away from certain sports. Um, But you've said that something earlier, Sarah, like one of the things I love tennis and I don't want to know anything about it. Please don't tell me any single thing about tennis. Like I just... And I you want, don't want to be ruin. ignorant. Yeah. yeah. Like I want to be ignorant of it so that I can just continue my fandom of it in that way that feels more pure or something uh, where I feel exhausted a lot of the time. So, I mean, I think that's obvious. I will say uh, as a Florida state fan, the chapter on racist mascots, um, I knew a lot of the stuff going about that going into it um, because of my time doing my history PhD at the University of Texas. But that was really, that's why FSU is in that chapter. I wanted to make sure that I address that directly uh, because that's part of my own identity. But also that was working on that was when I really started to get rid of everything in my house that had the mascot on it, which was not, I mean, I had a children's book for my son that had the mascot in it. Uh, I mean, you know, coffee mugs, we took the tag, the thing, the tag around your license or the, mm-hmm. the thing around yep. your license tag license on your car. Mother, yeah. Yeah. Thank you. We had to get rid of the, like just the amount of stuff that we had. Uh, so in my personal life, that was, that was a big one for me while, while writing this book. I'm currently addressing that with the Blackhawks yeah. which for years have had their own different narrative around it. And it has felt quite different from anywhere with a Indian chop or a racist, you know, name or, or face. But uh, the more I'm listening to native American uh, people who say any mascot, any caricature just unfortunately creates the wrong idea, especially for children in that culture. Um, it feels inevitable now that, th- that that will change. And I feel guilty now. I have this like extremely broken in hat. And part of the reason I always wear it is because it's just black with like the logo mm-hmm. on it. And so it's an easy goes with everything. And now yeah. when I'm like, oh, I don't, I don't know if that's the go-to. Like it's, it's, it's complicated. It's hard, which is why these conversations are useful and interesting is because they're complicated. It's not as simple as like OJ Simpson is a bad person. Stop rooting right. for him. 
right? Well, like, right. That's pretty easy. You, like if, if the Blackhawks do change their name and their logo, will you feel a sense of loss for whatever that changes to? So I'm a tough case because I feel very tied to them in the sense that when I moved back to Chicago from LA, I became a sort of beat reporter type role. And so I was embedded with the team for their runs. They won three cups in span of like eight years. I know a lot of the players. I, I have a lot of great associations, but I also didn't grow up loving them because the owner was like, oh, let's black out the games in Chicago so people will have to go in person, which instead just made it so most people didn't know or care about the Blackhawks. Um, and also because my parents aren't really into sports. So I had to choose and become a, in love at different times in my life with the things that I introduced myself to. Um, but I can see how somebody whose family for generations has been going and attaching itself, it does get complicated, right? When you bring back the old ones, are they Chicago hockey greats mm-hmm. versus Blackhawks greats? It's semantics. Who gives a shit? But for some people, it just makes things stickier than they would like, and they want to remember it the way they they did. Um, what's the worst for you, Kavitha? Which one stood out to you the most? I think definitely the the gendered violence one. You know, I've written at ESPN. I wrote about um, being a sexual assault survivor myself, and this is just something that comes up that comes up in my personal life so much, let alone the professional life. I mean, Sarah, you and I wrote and talked a lot about together when we worked together about the professional stickiness of this particular issue. But just you know, if I'm at a bar with some friends and like I said, a role as Chapman comes on, or you know, you can kind of there's so many other names mm-hmm. that you can throw out there. Um and it's just not something that immediately occurs to anybody, right? And it's that it's that reinforcement that, you know, this thing that happened to me has made has like forever changed my life and forever changed how I can both view the world and experience the world um, and experience sports. Right. And, and that's something that, um, that is, is constantly difficult to reconcile that that makes me different because I think one of the things also about being a sexual assault survivor is that you try very hard not to have it change your life, even though it does. And it doesn't have to for the worse. Um, You know, I am a stronger person now because of that, but it still does completely change everything, right? Or it can. Um, And and for a lot of other people, like it would just be so nice to be able to just watch a rule to Chapman and throw 101 miles an hour and just be able to enjoy that. Like, um, and it's just not, it's not always possible. And then you have that moment where you're like, well, I don't want to be that girl, right? I don't want to be that girl who's always pointing this out, who's always the Debbie Downer. But at the same time, if we don't point it out, if we don't have this body of work to point to also, um, these these types of attitudes and these kinds of normalizations will will continue to persist and you know we saw that we've seen that to the most extreme level with something like Harvey Weinstein but we see that in very everyday interactions as well so that chapter was particularly difficult but also kind of cathartic i think that one of the things that i hope people get out of all of the chapters in this book is that even if you don't have one dilemma or you don't identify with all the dilemmas in here, you see that if there is one that you have gone through, that there's also plenty of other fans that we've interviewed who have gone through those as well. Right. Um, And then the other chapter that I just very much identify with is just how to love your team when you hate your owner. I mean, I'm a Knicks fan, right? Like, but they're also, you know, we, we interviewed, we interviewed Washington football fans. We interviewed um, Clippers fans who lived through the Sterling era, right? Like there's so many, different reasons to hate your owner, but they're also, but it's reflective of the fact that these owners don't actually care about you. And I think that that's really difficult as a sports fan to realize is that this thing that you are so invested in and that you are so emotionally attached to 
isn't actually going to be reciprocated in that same way. That doesn't mean that you should love these things less, but it does kind of give you this realization about, about what we're actually doing here, right? Um, and and about, about these dynamics at play. And then there are just reasons to hate your owner that have to do with like labor and the way they treat your players and the way that you wouldn't want to treat your own workers. Um, so those are, those are the two chapters I think resonated most with me. There's so many things I thought of in there. And one of them was you talking about how it would be nice to be able to watch and not think of those things. And the reason that I wrote about Kobe Bryant after he passed was this incredibly complicated view of him that you espoused very similarly in the sort of epilogue to this. And I got a lot of death threats. Like, I'm going to murder you brutally in broad daylight. Like, had to file police reports after I wrote the Kobe story. And in it, I said, he seemed like someone who was becoming a really powerful and important person who could have done a lot, who might have eventually even spoken openly and honestly about whatever happened in Colorado and done some good by it, that he was aspirational and inspirational in so many ways, but that when I watched the Grammys the night that he died and people talked about potentially canceling them and everyone on stage called him a hero, all I could think about was whether that girl who has probably tried to stay as far away from basketball and sports and Kobe Bryant is possible and might have sat down to watch the Grammys is slapped in the face with the idea that this person who irrevocably changed her life was being considered a hero without a thought for that. And it's not that the worst thing you've ever done is who you are and only who you are, but also the worst thing you've ever done when it affects someone else forever can't be washed over because you were good at basketball and you were changing. And so I think one thing that I respect so much about this book is understanding that all of these things might trigger in someone the anger that they felt at me for writing about Kobe. And so all of these things will result in you guys having to deal with what happens when you're the person who speaks up about something that people don't want challenged or muddied. And Jessica, you seem like you're on the edge of your seat to say something. Well, no, I was going to just say that one thing about sports too, is that everything tends to get flattened in a way that can be very painful for people who know too much. This is why we all try to not know anything. So like with Kobe mama mentality came and that was a result. Like that was how he dealt with the fallout from what happened in Colorado. Right. And so. Yeah. The thing when, he had, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Yeah. The thing he had to overcome to show mama mentality yeah. was being accused of sexual assault. And over time now that's gotten flattened and then, morphed into this idea of like being a good basketball player you put on your mama mentality and you go out there and whenever I hear it the thing I think about is that woman in Colorado and the way that we just I don't know the way that our culture just is okay with so much of these things that are problems um as far as the reaction to this stuff and whether or not it will be good or bad I will say I wrote a whole book on college football and sexual assault and Overall, the reaction to that was really positive because most people won't read a book. <laughs> that, like, I mean, <laughs> like the, the people, the people that will will probably, yeah, <laughs> probably yeah, engage people, with you I, positively. My story about the first book is I got a one star review on Amazon, and my husband was like, "Don't read it, don't read it," because he's seen. I mean, I've gotten all the shit too, right? Like, he's like protect yourself. But the one star review, the guy had clearly read the book and just disagreed. And I was like, okay, I can take it because he's actually dealing with the information in front of him. Uh, We just disagreed deeply. So, (laughs) you know, there's a part of me that's not that worried that uh, people will get very angry about this. But I do think it is super challenging. So I will say like, in the Olympics chapter, 
I don't, I love the Olympics. I, I'm one of those people. I love to watch it. I'm sad that it's not on this year. I hope that it's somehow can happen next year. But also I know in my heart and I know from all the research and talking to all the people like that, it, they are bad. The Olympics and the World Cup are bad and they really harm local communities like in really long term ways. Like Brazil is in trouble for a long time because those two mega events happen there and shit will happen in Tokyo that will be long standing. And but at the same time, I want to watch these women be great. And this is one of the biggest platforms for that. And I I still feel uncomfortable with that chapter <laughs> in a lot of ways because I don't know how to reconcile that. And there's feelings in myself that aren't positive even about the stuff that we're talking about. So I wouldn't be surprised if people are upset. I, I kind of hope that they are because that means that you've, you're activating something in them that should be because you should feel implicated in a lot of the stuff because we all are in some way participating. But that's the whole point, right? We can't just leave it and just say, whatever, do with it what you want, right? Um, I'm not going to not care about these things because then I'm just leaving it to all the jerks who made it that way in the first place. So I don't know. I don't know if that was a long answer kind of ramble, <laughs> no, but I, I feel I feel all of it. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah I mean, there, we're, there's a we're part all, of me that thinks we're protected because it's a book. <laughs> <laughs> we're we're all extremely guilty in this. Like the the, what, the the thing I hope people don't take away is that Jessica and I are preaching, right? Because like we're we wrote this because we felt all of these dilemmas. We still feel all of these dilemmas. You mentioned the Kobe thing. You know, when Kobe died, I was on my I was on my way with one of my producers to go do some field reporting for another thing. We turned the car around. We just took the mic and went down to Staples Center and I had to put on like reporter face and not react to anything and and everything. And then we we got everything done. It was like a 14 hour day. And then I went home and I just cried like that's, you know, I, I let I let my feel myself feel those things. And then the next day I sent a note to Jessica and our publisher and I was like, I think I have to add a part of this to our to our epilogue, to our conclusion, because this is exactly Kobe exactly encapsulates in in just one thing how I've gone through every stage of these dilemmas, right? And I still feel like I love Kobe. Like, I can't tell you, like, you know, the first time I, I hate LA, but the first time I ever came to LA, I was 14 and it was a birthday present. And we, it was the first time I'd ever been to Staples Center and I got to see Kobe. Like, that was the reason we came here for that trip. So I can't, you know, I, you know, and obviously like, Growing up with the Knicks after like 1999, I had to find something else to root for in basketball to keep me interested. Um, but, you know, I, I also what I wrote in this epilogue, what I also remember very vividly is, you know, I was 14 when Denver, when, when Eagle Colorado happened and I didn't want to believe it was true. And I like to think that I was a feminist because I was raised by extremely strong women. But I was 14. I didn't really know what that exactly meant. And I remember saying this woman is a cleat chaser and a star and she was, you know, why would she be in the hotel room and all of these things that now as an adult and as someone who has covered sexual violence and who has been the victim of sexual violence, I have a greater understanding of, well, these are not productive. That's the playbook. This, that's, that's the playbook. That's, that's the playbook that we've all been taught every time. These are the things you ask, and this is how you know that it's always the woman lying. And it was the yeah. automatic thing as a 14-year-old. It was so ingrained in me. And in the, you know, 15 years since then, you know, I I've come to realize that, like you said, that is completely out of the playbook. But I've also, and I've I've tried to correct that and I've tried to hear more about about what could have possibly happened and about and try to understand more about what this woman went through because 
I've, I've been through something similar, frankly, but also just because I've, I've evolved in, in how I've looked at these issues. But through that entire process, through those 15 years when he died, it just brought back how much I still love Kobe Bryant and how much he, he still means to me and, and, and meant to my the formulation of my sports fandom. You know, if I was 10, 12, 14 years old when he was, you know, really like coming up in the league. And, and it just, it just brought back this flurry of exactly these dilemmas that, that we write about in this book. So I just wanted people to know that we don't think we're better than you if you've been through right. these things. And if you think these things, cause I'm still dealing with these. Well, and that's know. part of it too, is this, it's not black or white bad or good, either stop watching sports or stop complaining, which is, you know, that kind of logic reminds me of when people say, oh, well, if you're getting harassed and you're not getting treated right, you should leave your job. Okay, good. So I should just leave the whole company full of the harassers. Or if you're at ESPN and you don't agree with everything ESPN does, you should leave. Okay, well, then we just want to leave the company to all the people who do agree. Like, that's not how it works. And that's not how it works for sports, too. So I'm sure you guys will be accused by some of just if you don't like it, leave. Or if you're going to complain about it, stop watching. And it's really not that simple. But one thing that I've done in sort of one thing I'll say about this job that I actually appreciate is the social media receipts and the people who want you to fail actually have made me a better person. Because if my hypocrisy gets called out and someone finds something from 10 years ago that I said or wrote and I feel differently now then I can just say, I feel differently now. I've learned so much. I've evolved. And like, absolutely, I was wrong back there, but I feel differently now. And it stings and it hurts. But being called out has made me a better person because it also makes me want to be more true to what I say and how I feel and not give myself outs. And that involves things like, I don't like comedians who are going to do bad things to women and ruin their careers. But I do like Louis C.K. and I've seen him live a bunch of times, so I'm going to stick with him. I don't do that. Sean White, I was watching at the last Olympics and he did this amazing thing and I had not heard about his issues. So I'm on Twitter. Oh my God, how amazing was that? And like instantly, like five people were like, dude, haven't you heard about Sean White? I start Googling. I'm like, ah, shit. Like, <laughs> but, I, but I've stopped hanging on to people because I want to create a space that they get to be that doesn't apply to everyone else, whether that's Patrick Kane or, or Aldous Chapman or anybody else. Like, I, I'm not allowed to discriminate based on whether it means something to me. And if you decide that it is easier to be consistent, it sucks. <laughs> it sucks to not be able to just make up rules for the people that you want to excuse. But I also do that allowing myself to be human and understanding that it's going to be tougher with some people than others. But if people hold me accountable, I want to be able to be honest and genuine in defending how I feel and who I am. And Jessica, I would imagine like that pulling away of the band-aid of like, let me defend the Seminoles. Let me move a little bit further away. Let me now realize that I don't want to be a part of it. That's a long process. And so for people reading, it's not an instant snap of your fingers. And suddenly this stuff should matter more to you than generations of fandom, but it's something to consider. Yeah, it takes a long time. And I think we're always shifting. My hope is that college football does all the things that I wanted to do and I can go back to watching it and feel better. I don't know, CTE, like, is that ever going to allow me to really, but, but still that they're going to, I want them to pay the players. I want um, more accountability when these issues pop up around gendered violence, like all, whatever that is, I want those things to happen so that I can be a fan again. It's so funny that you mentioned that as like having to let go of 
these people as some idealized version of them that is the athlete. Uh, one of the things that I do with one of my good friends, uh, Dan Solomon, who I report with a lot, something will happen in the news and I'll text him and I'll be like, I never want to hear a bad thing about this person. Please be good. Please be good. Please be good. Like, I just like, can you just be good for the rest of your life so that I don't ever have to like reevaluate and, and do that work that you're talking about. And so I'm trying to remember the last person that I don't even want to say it out loud, right? Like that oh, I just insane. had one like uh, several months ago. And I think Gabe Kapler uh, had said some amazing things about his players and how he was empowering them to be good people. And I was like, now this is a leader. I'm excited about this. And like immediately someone was like, ah, Gabe Kapler was the one who was with the Dodgers when he oversaw the minor league sexual. So I was like, yeah. yeah, two seconds. Yeah. It only took two seconds. It's like, it's like Kenny Stills, are you listening to me right now? Can you please just... Oh. Just yeah. good forever. We, I don't want we to. We all have the ones that we're like, please don't. <laughs> but yeah, but we have like, I even have, I say that because I know from experience how hard that is. Like the reason I started writing about gender violence and sec sexual assault in college football was because the Florida State Seminoles had a quarterback who was a phenom and he took us to the national championship and he was also reported for sexual violence, right? Jameis Winston. And like, that is how I got into writing on this. And so the first thing that I ever did around this was reconciling my own fandom. And I can remember that season defending Winston because people made fun of his accent, right? Because he's very Southern and there was so much racist, classist shit around him. And so I had spent months doing that work of like, no. And then having to just suddenly recalibrate and make sense of that for myself. So, I mean, yeah, it's, it's a long time and I want it, I want it to change and get better. And then I will also change my own relationship to the sport if, and when those things happen. Right. So like it can go both directions. It's not like it's always you just shedding. Um, you want, I want to be in that fandom in that community too. I want to love the sports. Kavitha, um, I imagine that you know, you're you're younger. And so more of your life has been spent on the internet being called out or realizing a shitty take years later or evolving. How for you has this, I would imagine writing this book and having to put into words things that you know, a year or two or five from now, you'll be like, mm, maybe not on that. Or like I was spot on on that. Um, it must make you very thoughtful about the roots of your opinions and how formulated and secure they are and being certain that they aren't being affected by a momentary affinity for somebody or belief in something. Yeah. I mean, I think that's definitely true. I, you know, being on the internet and especially when I started to, to be on TV a little bit more and have more of a public profile, I was like, Oh, maybe I should go back and look at my previous tweets and just mm -hmm. like see what, like, you know, cause I've been on Twitter, I think since 2009 or something or 2008. And like, what was 19 year old Kavitha tweeting about my first ever tweet, by the Let's way, find out I went back. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> my first ever tweet, literally my first ever tweet in the world was Henrik Lundqvist is really hot. Ah, well, <laughs> a, I mean, a, a take that has stood the test of time, <laughs> you know, like, you know, come at me if you have a problem with that take, but, you know, also incredible insight for a four. For yeah, a I nailed it. You you were know, destined absolutely. to work in the business. Exactly. <laughs> um, and defend women's right to be here. Yeah. Because, you know, we don't just like the athletes because they're hot. Yeah. yeah, that, yeah. That take will absolutely <laughs> hold But I also remember referring to Sidney Crosby as Cindy Crosby. I also remember referring to the women who were partying with Josh Hamilton as cleat chasers, you know, and, and, you know, there, there are things about that that will evolve. But as far as my opinions, I think, especially when you write a book, you have to really think through these opinions. It's not the same as firing off a tweet. Um, 
But a lot of these things that we wrote that we wrote about are things that we've been grappling with for a lot of years and, and are things that we've thought about for a lot of years. But it was really helpful for me to, you know, we, we interviewed so many other fans and we interviewed experts in these fields. And we kind of approached this. It's, it is kind of, you know, ourselves are very much in this book, but it's more of a report. You know, I come from a column writing space. This is more of a reporting space. Um, but it, it was really helpful to get the various perspectives here, you know, like in the, in the loving your team, when you hate your owner um, chapter, there is, you know, we, inter I inter we interviewed um, a, a fan of the Washington football team. And he literally said, he's, you know, when he's at home in Baltimore on Sundays, he goes upstairs when the family is watching football, he is just done. And then we've interviewed, we interviewed people who said, I still need to watch the game, but I sit down when Jose Reyes comes to bat, you know, that kind of thing. And, and the fact that there really is no one right answer and all of that taken into consideration when you're formulating your opinions on, on, on these things is really important. But also, like you said, giving yourself space to grow and evolve in them. And I think one of, one of the spaces that I have grown and evolved is in the sexual violence space because even when we're talking about something like Kobe Bryant or Jameis Winston or some of the cases that are way more cut and dry, there are, there is, I've heard from a lot of fans who are black men who will remind me, not that I ever forgot about this, but of the history of white women accusing black men, especially, um, athletes or, you know, physically strong black men of sexual violence. Um, and, and that is always underpinning these conversations. And it's not as easy as just saying this, you know, this person is accused of this, he is canceled forever. Um, and I think that those gray areas, there's no right answer, there just really isn't. But those gray areas are what we're really trying to explore here, while also acknowledging that not acknowledging those gray areas is how we get to the point where we have a president who can kind of say anything he wants about women. And that's just acceptable, right? Like that bar keeps getting pushed because we stop questioning the things that we already know to exist in things like sports. Yeah. I think one of the problems is, is that because of the way the internet has become this thing that affects our dialogue off the internet as well, where it's always about attacking and, and extremes, the, the conversation, which is to say you can talk about it and not have all the answers and that's okay, has been lost. And instead, it's you're a hypocrite if you feel this way, but I'm not someone who actually cares about it. I don't, I don't actually care. I just want to call you out for caring, right? And, and that serves right. nothing and no purpose other than to try to silence people who want to bring up topics that deserve to be discussed. And Jessica, I'm curious about that part of it because I always try to balance wanting to talk about important issues and wanting to make sure an audience that might get complacent continues to challenge itself and its views. But I also don't want to lose that audience because I'm considered shrill or cynical or naggy or any other term given to a woman who brings up topics that they would rather ignore. How do you balance that? Because I do think the older I get, the less I give a shit about it. Right. But at some point, if you don't give any shit about it, no one's there to listen to you anymore because they're sick of you complaining. So yeah. how do you do it? Yeah, I think part of it, you do come to a point where you just accept that like there are some people that you're just going to lose and that you just got to let those people go. But I do think the other side of it is that we're all just sports fans. Like sometimes I'm looking at social media and watching you guys tweet and you just love sports a lot. And that comes through as much as the critique that we all do, right? Uh, people 
have told me repeatedly over time that they love when I live tweet tennis, even if they don't know anything about it, because I'm so clearly deeply invested and into it. And I care a lot and that that alone comes through. And so they'll get involved in a tennis match that they otherwise would not have even known was happening. And so I think that's the other side of it, right? That we're doing the critique, but we're doing the critique because we deeply love this thing and we want it to be better. And I think that part of it comes across a lot of the time. I feel like right now is a particular moment that's really difficult because I'm like, I feel weird that we're having sports at all because we're in a pandemic and that's super serious. But also I love the WNBA and I've been watching a lot and I've actually been trying to figure out like, do I just ignore it all together on social media? Do I show that I'm a fan? Do I do the critique? Like this is a particular moment where I found it really difficult to figure out how to balance all of that stuff together. But I, I do think that's the other side of it is the, the sports fan. Yeah, what we're what we're going through right now, I think, is like the perfect encapsulation of what we've written of the central question of the book, right? Like, like Jessica said, I don't think it's safe to be playing sports right now. I just don't. Um, I'm I'm really f-ing scared. I know 20 people who died because I'm from New York, and we all, you know, oh, wow. like those those early days. I've been on way too many Zoom funerals, you know. And those early days, New York was the only place that was really hit, and it felt like we were, even though I was here in LA, it felt like we were very much on an island. Um, and and I'm, I'm not happy that that other people are now going through this, but I think that everyone can now identify with what it felt like to be a New Yorker when, when the pandemic first hit. But at the same time, I would talk to my friends over there who would be, you know, they'd, they'd tell you about the, the sirens going by five times, five times every 10 minutes and, and just what it was like to be in New York in March and April. And, and, when there started to be a glimmer of hope that these leagues would restart. And I would be like, you know, especially in my, then relatively safe bubble in LA. Well, guys, like, you know, you're seeing the worst of this and, and this isn't safe, obviously. And they'd be like, yeah, but it would, it would give me a little bit of a sense of normalcy. And I can't, I can't argue with that. That is so understandable. It's like, and, and, and so, um, and so real that yes, like this isn't, you know, this isn't, this probably isn't safe, but I, I kind of need this. And this would give me so much comfort. And let me tell you, like when baseball came back, like I've, I've relished every minute of it, yeah. however long yeah. this weird. Well, and it's has. a business too, in the sense that it's not just rich players and owners who are making money. It allows it to keep moving forward, which then allows them to pay all the other staff members and employees that otherwise have not been, been employed or have been furloughed. Right. It, it needs to thrive in order to keep all the underlying structures that are held up by it uh, going, which a lot of right. people forget about when they think, Oh, we would just need these millionaires to keep playing. We did um, an episode actually where we interviewed um, one of the stadium workers for the Cubs. Um, she goes by the alias Val Capone. Um, oh, I know Val. I'm yeah. with Val. There you go. Okay. Badass, yeah. badass uh, rollerblader, roller, roller derby. That's roller where she has derby. her name, yep. Val Capone, from. Yeah. Um, yeah, we've we've partied many a time out in Mesa for Cubs spring training. So Val, Val's, Val's a good one to have on. I'll have to go listen to that. Um, well, we could go on forever, but we've run out of time. Um, this book is really important and thoughtful and it's not just for women and it's not just for people who are cynical. It's for people who do love sports and would probably be very well served by thinking through and reading through some of the issues, have a better understanding of how to balance what they're feeling and the sort of cognitive dissonance that's required 
with a desire to potentially nudge a little bit of change and make it easier. And I love that optimism from you, Jessica. It's like, well, if they just do all of the things that I want them to do, then we could have a great relationship. I know. So be in charge. Yeah. It's the way Kavitha's <laughs> dealt with every boyfriend. <laughs> if they do exactly. all the things I want, we could be really happy. Why won't they? Um, but uh, congratulations on the book. I know it's probably weird to finish it and celebrate it and launch it during a pandemic. But uh, I think it's going to be uh, really well received. And thanks so much for hanging out with me. Thank you. Thanks for having us on. That's what she said. It's time once again for South Bitch Sessions, where I rant about something that bothers me and I fix it. And this week, it, it's pretty easy one. And it falls perfectly in line with the guests I had on today. And it's sports broadcasters who forget that part of their job is to filter what's in their brain before it makes it to their mouth. Uh, it was a weird week for that. And and I don't know if it was because I was on vacation. So I, I really stayed away from social media and my phone and, and work stuff. And it's it felt like I came back and it all piled on at once uh, as a sort of a welcome back. Uh, but Tom Brenneman, during a, uh, a hot mic moment that he didn't realize he was on the air, used the gay uh, F word slur. Mike Milbury made a throwaway comment during an NHL playoff broadcast that sort of painted women as distractions. Uh, former driver, now commentator in NASCAR, Paul Tracy, drew attention to Danica Patrick's shoes when she was ostensibly on to be an analyst, calling her shoes sexy twice and then stating he's always been a sucker for sexy shoes, uh, which, you know, again, she's just doing her job as an analyst and no one needs to know about your sex time thoughts, Paul Tracy. Uh, one day if I snap, it's probably going to be about this because uh, it feels like such an obvious thing. We went over this many times before where you're in the middle of watching a college football or an NFL game and all of a sudden the camera pants to the crowd and the old ass grandpa of a broadcaster decides to share his sexual thoughts about the 19 year old girl that they just showed or say something stupid and gross like, hey, all you kids out there, go be a quarterback. Those are the kind of women you'll get or oh, lots of guys just applied to FSU after seeing that like. It's part of the job to not say those things. And trust me, as a woman who is predominantly talking about men's sports and is looking at men running around in any kind of uniform or outfit, I got to do it all the time. And I do because that's the job. And yet these men who are seeing like a woman per 100, if that, can't just keep their thoughts in their pants. Lindy West, who is a great writer, wrote about Olympic coverage of female athletes a couple years ago. And I always go back to that story for any number of quotes, but I love this one. This is one of them. It was a do's and don'ts. Don't bring your sex feelings into it. And yes, I'm aware that there are more than several women on Twitter with passionate opinions about the shoulder to waist ratios of the piles of trapezoids on the men's swimming roster. But there is not currently a vacuum of serious, well-rounded coverage of men's sports. There is not a historic precedent of men's bodies eclipsing their accomplishments and in turn undermining their credibility and hobbling their upward mobility in every major industry. It's okay to have sex feelings. Just watch where you're spraying them. So I would say if you're listening and at any moment you thought to yourself, but I heard a woman once say there are any number of reasons why it is much less damaging and problematic. Doesn't mean it's great. When these guys do this, it's far more than just a throwaway comment. It reminds everybody watching that we're watching through the male gaze. It reminds everybody participating that women are there to be objects or distractions or to be objectified. It reminds everybody watching that the women who do make it and are a success and are offered up as experts to give their opinions are still then reduced to a sexy pair of shoes. <laughs> That's what I have to say about that. 
And as for Tom Brenneman, I've said plenty about that, uh, unrelated to objectifying women and more about uh, the thoughts that are in your head and the things that come out of your mouth when you think people aren't listening are who you are. Your excuse saying it's not is believed by nobody. All right. I feel good about what we accomplished today. Everyone stop being assholes, please. <laughs> I came back from vacation and I expected better. There, I fixed it. If you have a dilemma for the commission to fix, tweet it to me at Sarah Spain or go to the iTunes or podcast app, subscribe, rate, and review, and leave the dilemma in your review. Maybe I'll fix it on a future podcast. Thanks as always for lasting about an hour with me. That's what she said. 